If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Eric Culkin, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines. In this episode, we sit down with Julie Mack. She is the author of the weekly Data Mind series, where they jump into the data to paint a picture of life here in Michigan. She's also the lead writer on the coronavirus, so we talk to her a lot about navigating through all of that data to make sense of the world around us. It's Behind the Headlines. Well, I've had a better reporter for more than 40 years, and this is the first time where I've had a story where for two months it's the only subject that I wrote about and I was writing stories every single day about the same thing. Julie Mack is our guest today. She has been with MLive since 1990 and reports on the public interest team. As I said in the introduction, she does a lot of amazing work having to do with data and is currently working on the coronavirus as the lead writer, helping us navigate through the changes that seem to happen every single day. My guest, as always, is John Heiner, Vice President of Content for MLive. John, how are you? I am doing well, Eric. Another week. Um... I just saw somebody send me a calendar invite for something in July, and I said, hold on. Come on, 2020. <laughs> well, I mean, having... optimistically, we're making it to July. That's good. I like that. Yeah, maybe we'll make it to 2021. It'll all be a bad dream like that old Dallas episode. Yes. Anyways, it's great to have with us today on Behind the Headlines, Julie Mack, who's one of our top reporters in MLive, who works for our public interest team, and she covers... Uh, enterprise stories, which are stories of depth, stories that require a lot of research, a lot of sourcing, and uh, bring to light important public issues. And Julie Mack is, first of all, I want to say good morning, Julie. Thanks for joining us. It's good to have you here. And uh, I'm going to share a little personal story uh, about Julie. Um, Julie has worked for the company since 1990, and I've worked for the company since 1986. However, we really didn't officially start working together until MLive Media Group launched in 2012. That said, we have a very tenuous shared connection that goes that runs through the Jackson Citizen Patriot. That was where I entered our company in 1986, and I worked with a copy editor named Glenn Atkin. Hello, Glenn, if you're out there listening. And what is your connection to Glenn Atkin, Julie Mack? Well, I actually have two connections. Um, one is, is that he is my uncle. He is married to my mother's sister. But the other is I actually worked for um, the company back in the day. Um, my first job was back in 1978 or 79 as an intern for the Jackson Citizen Patriot. I did not know that. And I So I have actually been a journalist for more than 40 years. I was on the payroll of the Jackson Citizen Patriot in the late 70s. And I, my first full-time job out of after graduating from Michigan State in 1981 was um, Glenn hired me actually, and I was a reporter and for about a year and a half with um, in in Jackson and worked there, and then actually got a job in um, Staten Island Advance, the mothership, and where I actually met Cy Newhouse. He was still alive. 
And um, wow. so, um, and then worked for another paper, Hartford Current, and came back, to, and then came back to Michigan. Well, I frequently say that Jackson Citizen Patriot was the cradle of greatness for it's a font of many good journalists who have gone on and done great things in Michigan. Where are you based now, Julie? And tell us a little bit about the work you, you do on a daily basis. So when I um, I lived out on the East Coast during for most of the 1980s, when I came back, I wanted to live near family and I live in Kalamazoo. Um, I am one of five sisters and two of my sisters live in Kalamazoo. Um, so three of us live in Kalamazoo, including one who lives down the street. Um, and my work for um, the company right now is I am often the person who is doing big picture stories on complicated issues. Um, you know, I think that that, um, you know, stories that take some time, but also, um, you know, require it does mean requiring a lot of background knowledge, a lot of reporting, and a lot of <laughs> trying to weave that all together into a, a comprehensive narrative. Now you're doing a lot of work on the deeper dive stories on the coronavirus and COVID and some really fascinating work. Early on <laughs> in the crisis, you were when there was a lot of public concern about spread of this, how it's spreading. Um, the hospitals being overwhelmed, things of that nature. You did some stories on the fact that neighboring states, especially Ohio, were having quite a different experience than we were in Michigan. First of all, are you a health expert? I'm interested in health policy. I was very, I'm very interested, for instance, in the Affordable Care Act. Um, I've, I've had some health issues myself. So I'm fascinated by that world, but I have not done a lot of, of health reporting outside of the ACA and the ACA was reporting I've done has, not, has been more from a policy standpoint. So I will tell you, I really had to educate myself really fast about coronavirus. That was a really, really new area for me. Give us an idea of the kind of research materials you might use. Journalists are known for being a mile wide and an inch deep sometimes, but to get depth on an issue that's this complicated <laughs> um, and, and just in, the, in it's happening right in front of us currently. I start with the pop, you know, Googling the subject. And so, you know, you're reading the in-depth stories that are in the New York Times and the Washington Post. I have some digital subscriptions to both um, the New Yorker, um, CNN. Then a lot of times what I'll do is if they mention a study, I will, go, I will, if they have a link, I will, I track down that study. And I was actually reading the studies, see, okay, well, what is it that they're concluding here? So I was actually reading a lot of the early studies on coronavirus and its causes and stuff like that. So, you know, you read a, di a diverse set of sources and then, you know, you're talking to experts and saying, okay, I read this. What do you think of, of, of that? It helps that we had, we have, you know, major, a bunch of major hospital chains in Michigan. Within the first day that I covered coronavirus, I think I emailed all of them and said, looking, I did. I had like a, a, a mass email and just basically said, I'm looking to talk to people about coronavirus. Um, whatever experts you have, please put me in touch with them. And I got in touch with people who I've been talking to since. Um, and we also have, you know, some really, we have one of the best higher ed systems in the country. And, um, you know, the um, universities have been a, a tremendous resource. They all have experts. And so I was, you know, especially Michigan State, U of M in particular, in this particular case, I 
hit on a lot. There was, uh, there was someone at Wayne State I've been talking to, um, you know, whatever experts they've, they've had. Um, so I was able to develop a, a pretty long source list pretty fast. And so, Julie, this story has obviously developed um, differently than than perhaps when you started. And by that, I mean it felt it felt as a state when this started, we were all together. Right. And now it feels like there's we're once again back to teams. You know, team mask, team no mask. I know you wrote a piece on that. How how has the reporting changed for you now that you're dealing with almost like a, a political story instead of an, a health story at this point? It is interesting. And, you know, it was funny. At the very beginning, experts told me the problem with mitigation strategies is that if they work, people are going to complain. That that's actually one side of its success. Because if you keep down the cases low enough, people are going to say, why did we do this? It was a waste. I mean, I was told that from day one, that the best, you know what I mean, you'll, you'll know that this works if people are saying, this was stupid. This this was this was this was a waste because the idea is to tamp down the cases as much as possible. And you know they were that was um, I, I didn't realize how true that would be, right? Sure. Um, you know. So, um, but I will say in the beginning, you're right. I mean, and it, it, it was interesting. You're seeing a tragedy unfolding on one hand pretty fast but on the other hand it's also slow rolling i mean i've used to been used to covering more disaster sort of things where something really bad happens and it's unfolding you know um like the mass shooting in kalamazoo for instance sure. you know it's happening within a share this was like over a you know a three-week period that was just i mean i live in kalamazoo which didn't get it till much later and it wasn't that scary but i'm talking every day to these doctors and people who are in Detroit, and it was just, it was scary. I mean, and I'm looking at the numbers every day; they're doubling every, literally doubling every three days. You know, and you and you can see. And I was comparing those to other states, and that was and it was scary. It's like holy cow! All of a sudden, we went from zero. We were one of the last states to have a case of coronavirus, and within a pretty short period of time, like two and a half weeks. We went to Detroit. Went to being as bad as any place in the country. Worse, actually, had the, the highest deaths. I think around the beginning of April, it was. And I'm talking to doctors; they're in near tears. I mean, you know, you're talking to experienced doctors, and um, and they are. They were they were trying to describe how awful it was, um, and it was. It was pretty, it was, it was, it was scary how, I mean, I think people, people outside of, of Metro Detroit or people who haven't been touched personally by this, who think it was just the flu. It was like, man, if you could just be on these phone calls with these doctors. I had a doctor who told me, I can remember, I said, so how are you feeling right now? And she said, I feel like the sky is falling in. Yeah. I'm not going to really say that people who have doubts about this or, haven't experienced it, I think, like conspiracy theorists, but it's almost like the people who say, you know, I don't believe we've been to the moon, and you try to argue with them, and they say, have you been to the moon? And I'm like, no. I, can you prove it? Um, so, I, because here's what I'm getting as I've been up north a couple times uh, in the past. As soon as it was, was the restrictions were loosened, I have relatives who live up north. Right. And so I went, I went up north, and anywhere you go, you generally do not see people wearing masks anywhere. 
up right. north. And, and when you talk to my relatives or people up north, they say, we just haven't seen cases. It hasn't really happened right. up here. And so to your point where it, the sky was falling in, that was happening to people and they were in it and, it, and the hospitals were being overwhelmed in Detroit. But outside of Detroit, Eric had talked about it, like the teams people are on. It, they didn't see it and right. it, they don't they don't feel threatened. But you you live in the realm of statistics, too, Julie. Uh, I should point out for our listeners that Julie is the author of a weekly um, series we have called Data Mine. And she takes basically data that is publicly available or that we FOIA and she extracts from that meaning like she writes about trends and culture society health policing education that are derived from data and so what was a data approach or your mindset going into looking at trends and numbers that were associated with the coronavirus spread well i was for a, a time i was writing the daily story that said here's what the numbers were but i I mean, I still at three o'clock make a point of checking the numbers every day. And you could see that this was, you know, this blew up Detroit, but it was almost like a, a very slow moving tsunami, a tsunami that was then, you know, you could see where it was hitting, you know, the counties that, you know, it was Detroit, Oakland, and then it was moving into Macomb. And then you could see it moving from Oakland into Genesee and from um, Wayne into Washington, into Livingston. I mean, you know, you could just see this, um, you know, a surge happening in the counties immediately surrounding that, you know, the tri-county area of Detroit, and then the next ring of counties, and then the next ring of counties. I mean, you could see that wave moving out. And, um, and even like when Detroit was just getting past its worst, I mean, it was peaking in Flint. And I was talking to a doctor in Flint who was like, Oh yeah, now what people in Detroit, I can see here. Um, in, um, I mean, Grand Rapids was probably lucky enough to be far enough away that by the time that wave hit Grand Rapids, and it did hit the Grand Rapids area, but it was, it, it slowed enough that you could control it more. I mean, so you could see, you could see the, the, the contamination patterns just, um, you know, fanning out every day um, in those, how, how that how that was working. But also you could see how the mitigation strategies were working because it was slowing every day. That doubling every three days was slowing. I mean, you could see that, okay, so the numbers now are doubling. It took a week to double and now it's taking two weeks to double. And, um, and Michigan has actually had, if you were to look at the curves up and the curve, curves down, we've have had, we had one of the sharpest peaks up. One doctor was saying, he actually did the math. We had the single sharpest increase in a short amount of time. And we've also had one of the sharpest drops. And you can see that now. I mean, I can, you know, for a while, you know, Florida was way down on the list and, you know, Michigan was high up. You've also written, Julie, about why that was so. And Right. The readers who didn't see that, can you just hit a couple of the bullet points? What made yeah. Michigan so susceptible to that? And, and realize that this is, um, I mean, we don't really know for sure, right? I mean, um, but here are the theories. The theory is, one of the big theories is, is that um, Metro Detroit, this obviously came in from out other places. I mean, it happens spontaneously in Michigan. So, but, and why did it happen in Metro Detroit? And realize too, in Metro Detroit, 
the initial epicenter was not the city of Detroit. It was actually Oakland County. So it was, they figure it was travelers. It was people who, was, who were traveling. And it somewhat makes sense from the standpoint that Metro Detroit is home of the auto industry that is as international of a business as any international business. They do business in China. They do business in Italy. You have people you know, who are auto execs who are flying to the coast all the time. And they figured that's how it got into Michigan. I mean, you actually, I actually saw a study that said the eight original case, or the, they traced eight of the original cases. It wasn't the eight original, but eight of the original round. And it shows that it came into Michigan through Europe. And the other thing too to remember, so one is, is that we have a lot of international travel. Um, the other thing too is, is that Detroit airport was one of the only two airports in the Midwest that we're still continuing to get flights from um, China in Europe when they started shutting airports down. And so one of the big contrasts for us was Ohio. Ohio's population, metro population, urban population is spread among three areas, it's divided equally between Cincinnati, Cleveland, and, and Columbus. We have it all in one lump. And this disease, it likes density, um, it likes international travel, it likes, um, it likes poverty. I mean, because people are, um, when you have a lot of poverty, which you have a lot of um, poverty in Detroit, dense poverty, you've got people who are riding mass transportation. You've got people who are often living in more crowded living circumstances and can't socially distance that well. You have a lot of working class people living close together who have jobs that cannot be done at home and thus are essential workers often. And, um, you know, having to go out for those, those jobs. And so it does make, when you look at where nationally this disease has hit, um, hit hard, it is in something like Metro Detroit. I mean, Metro Detroit fits that poverty of having this big dense core of poverty in an area that also includes international travel, you know, that international airport thing. And then the final thing that I think and others think too was a big, could, could have helped fuel this is the fact that if you remember, we had a big primary election right on the eve of that. And think about, you had days of mass rallies, right? Indoor rallies for Bernie Sanders and some events for Joe Biden. Um, you had everyone going out and voting. A lot of that activity was around Metro Detroit because this was the interest was on the Democratic side and that's where the Democratic core of Michigan is. So I do think that the elect that the primary election was maybe a super spreader event in the same way that Mardi Gras was a super spreader event in New Orleans. So Julie, that leads me to the next question, which I'm fascinated by media literacy or more succinctly, the lack of media literacy. And you've done obviously the due diligence and I could talk to you all day long about the data. But one of the things that I would love your insight in is as a consumer, as a reader, as somebody who's navigating through the world in Michigan, in the United States or wherever, what is your advice on how they figure out what is actually going on? Right. Because if they go to Twitter or they go to Facebook or they go to, I mean, even Instagram, um, they're bombarded with data that negates one another doesn't make sense and then they take a little nugget and they go to you know meet with their friends and then that nugget spreads very similar to the virus but if they're trying to get more literate about what they're consuming can you give them a sense of how they should be consuming news in order to understand what is happening in the world well one thing that i one rule that i would tell people is um if it's if it's 
as much as people diss the mainstream media, um, I mean, the mainstream media is a diverse group. I mean, you don't have just um, what people would think of as, as liberal sources. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the Washington Post and the New York Times do excellent report, straight news reporting. AP does, you know, um, but also, you know, the Fox News News Division and the Wall Street Journal are both nationally known. But here's one of my rules that if, if you think that if something is coming from a news source that you don't really recognize, that, you know, some weird sort of made up name, if it's not being reported in the mainstream press somewhere, then, then why is that? Why wouldn't, um, why wouldn't what sounds like a conspiracy theory be reported by something? Because report, what I tell people again and again is, is news reporters, I mean, they, they sort of like conspiracy theories that are true. I mean, they're going to hop on. <laughs> they do. I mean, you know what I mean? If something is, if something is, is lured and it turns out to be true, they're going to hop all over that. So if you don't, if the only place you're seeing it is some weird news site, then there's a reason for that. One question I also often ask people when they're like, like I'm uh, no mass or, you know, mass or stupid or mass or unimportant. You know, let's use that as, as an example. Who is the most credible person making that claim? And what are their credentials? You know, you have all these scientists who are saying masks are good. And then who do you say the masks are, are useless? I think I found that expert. It's the, yeah. counter, it's the counter clerk at the marathon station in St. Helen, Michigan. He told yeah, me. I mean, that's that's exactly right. Right. You know, I mean, I had someone, someone emailed me this week saying that I was the sheeple for writing about masks, you know, <laughs> and I said, okay, why would I, why, who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe some random guy writing me an email who's telling me this is stupid or am I going to believe medical experts? Well, from your perspective, and you've written a lot about the public health aspects, how much in changes from your perspective with everything you've seen in the scientific or health data, where the decisions have been made to reopen, uh, how much of that do you think was political? And how much of it do you think truly was these phases were based on what they were seeing from the stats or public health um, experience? And there, and there was a huge pressure to that. Um, I mean, I do think that that, you know, people, the numbers are going down, people are over it. I mean, it's probably not a coincidence that, you know, she only had two of the most controversial things. You can't go fishing and you can't um, go to gardening centers, only lasted a couple of weeks. Um, you know, I think that that, that she, she, you know, those got pulled out of the thing pretty early. And she probably opened up the restaurants maybe a little faster than she might have otherwise. Um, you know, I, I, you know, there's no question that part of this was, was how, how, how long can we maintain this and still have people maintain some authority and credibility? I mean, it, um, you know, I think that's, that's a real hard balance, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because I'll tell you, I, I, on the eve of the, of the opening up, I interviewed a bunch of infectious disease doctors and none of them were feeling great about reopening at that point. Um. None of them. I will say I'll interject here and mention that uh, another reporter's name, works for us, Taylor DeSormo, wrote a piece, uh, I got to say two weeks ago, that ranked the relative risk of activities based on, he, he talked to infectious disease experts, I think four of them, and they ranked, you know, 
everything from playing tennis was like a one and going to a restaurant was like a six or something like that. But that has become one of the most read pieces. A matter of fact, I think it's the most read piece that we've had on MLive this year. It, it was a real practical guide for people to look at, but it was based in um, epidemiologists and public health experts rating these kind of activities. So people are really, really curious about as they venture back out, what is relatively safe compared to other things. Well, John, that's why I was asking the question about journalism, because it becomes vital right now as you're going out into the world and going, okay, so if I if my church is doing outside church, is that better than doing inside church? What happens when I go into a restaurant and I'm supposed to wear a mask from the door to the table? How you know, so what you guys are doing becomes absolutely paramount, especially right now as we're opening back up and not wanting a second wave. For sure. And I thought Taylor did a brilliant job with that piece. Actually, I gave him the name of the epidemiologist, um, but he, um, you know, they were, I felt like they were my epidemiologist, but he did a, <laughs> in terms of the conceptual, the, the, in terms of conceiving that piece, um, he did a, he did a, a great, did a, you know, the idea of, you know, I'm going to use a numeral ranking. I mean, he did this at a very developed, this whole numeral number system, which was brilliant. And, um, I wouldn't have done, you know, the idea of, of doing, having a list of 37 activities and running through them with them or however many he had. It was, there was a really well conceived and executed piece. I, I loved it. I wanted to ask you though, I, of all the people I work with, you have one of the most active, inquisitive minds as a reporter. I mean, you're always looking at fresh angles and new stories. What is left with the coronavirus and i don't think it's, i think we're far from over with coronavirus yeah. but you know they're doing thousands of studies can um you know simultaneously health studies around the world they're, they're getting insights every day but as a reporter what stories in your mind still need to be explored and told about uh COVID and the coronavirus um i think that there will be studies for years to come on why it blew up so fast um i mean what i threw out were theories but I think people will be studying that. I think that um, there may even be books written about the way that unfolded in Detroit because it was so harrowing for a time. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there will be probably one of the big stories, and I almost hesitate to mention it because I don't want other people looking at it. But, um, but, but the whole question of, you know, at the end of a year from now, was the fact that Michigan did have some of the, was was one of the slowest reopening it was so harsh and some of it shut down things did that um ultimately i mean that could play out in two ways it could have been an economic um crush that helps us that's going to be harder for us to recover or it could be that we are actually we're actually best positioned to for a recovery i mean you look at the fact that Right now, I mean, I'm working on a story right now about the fact that we are, um, our numbers are, in terms of new cases every day, we're looking right. You know, you have these other stories about states that are beginning to, you know, they recover, they open fast, but now they're surging. You know, we're reopening with, with from a much lower, from a much lower number base. And that is going to help us this summer. Um, it's going to be harder for us to, for that disease to get more, regain momentum here. So it could help us. I mean, economically, it could actually be beneficial to Michigan, but maybe not. We don't know, right? So I think that, that who recovers fastest 
um, and, and how that might have been impacted by the shutdowns, I think will be a big story as, as this begins, as we begin to come out of this. Well, thank you, Julie, for your insights today and for all the great work you've been doing for the sake of the citizens of Michigan and our readers and listeners. Um, one, of, obviously, we talked about the lengths of our careers, but I've got to put this whole 2020 and everything that's been happening in the, in the top five major stories of, of my career and on the import on our, our, our society, our state, and our readers. Um, I don't know about you, where this lands for you, but uh, you've, helped, you've helped our readers gain so much insight. I appreciate it. Well, I've, had, I've been a reporter for more than 40 years, and this is the first time where I've had a story where for two months, it's the only subject that I wrote about, and I was writing stories every single day about the same thing. Well, Eric, thank you uh, for another great discussion, uh, another episode of Behind the Headlines. I want to thank our guest again, Julie Mack, for joining us. And uh, until next week, thanks for joining us. And there we go. Another episode of Behind the Headlines. As always, if you like what you're hearing, here's what I would love for you to do. Head to Spotify and put the podcast into a playlist so you get it every single week. Or head to iTunes and give us a review. Both of those things help other people discover it. And then the last thing is, if you like it, share it. As always, John Heiner is my co-host. I am Eric Hulkren, and this was Behind the Headlines.